Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeologic artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last week, we started exploring the first known archaeologic evidence of Jewish existence, and followed the Israelite kingdom from its foundation through its fracturing into the two kingdoms of Judea and Samaria. We heard about the conquests of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires against the Jewish kingdoms, and ended with the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. This week, we'll explore what happened next. What happened to those Jews who were sent as prisoners to Babylon, to those who stayed behind in the ruins of Judea, and to those who fled as refugees into Egypt. As usual, before we dive into the history, let's do a quick geopolitical update. In 475 BCE, almost 100 years after the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem, the Persians, who had previously been a measly collection of semi-nomadic tribes, had now grown into an empire and had pretty much swept the board of the Middle East. They had taken Judea from the Babylonians and their reach had extended all the way through Egypt, which the Persian king Xerxes had conquered some five or ten years earlier. As a general rule, the Persian Empire didn't have much interest in inflicting their own ideologies on the people they conquered. As far as they were concerned, as long as they had your loyalty and taxes, you could believe whatever you wanted. So, let's begin with some history, starting off with the Jews who fled back to Egypt, the land of their former exodus. Most of the information we have from this time in Egypt comes from ancient letters written on papyrus and shards of pottery, and most of these artifacts come from the small island of Elephantine, which sits right in the middle of the Nile River. The writings were largely written in Aramaic, the commonly used language of the time, and they give us a sense of what life was like for Jews in ancient Elephantine, and by extension, the rest of Egypt. Elephantine was a small but beautiful place. The west bank of the island was filled with lush, green farmland, fig trees, palms, plenty of fruit-bearing plants supplying sustenance and product for trade. The east bank, drier and sandier, was home to a productive stone mine, which shipped large slabs to various Egyptian hubs to be made into mausoleums, among other constructions. Being located in the middle of the Nile River, and centered right at the border between Egypt and its southern neighbor, Nubia, you can imagine that Elephantine was also an important port city, rich with trade. It is also important to remember that there was already a small Jewish community in Elephantine, as well as in some other Egyptian cities, prior to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. These were likely populated by Jews who remained in Egypt after the Exodus, or migrated there over the years. But of course, Jews were not the only ones living in Elephantine at the time. There were many native Egyptians as well. These locals were of pagan religion, worshipping multiple different gods, who each governed a sphere of daily life. Given the degree of farming that took place on the island, and their dependence on good weather, the Elephantines primarily worshipped Knum, the Egyptian god of rain, who was represented by the head of a ram. So what were these Elephantine Jews actually like? Well, as was typical for life under Persian rule, the Jews were largely left to their own devices. They were free to take up any profession they wanted, practice their religion, and organize themselves as they liked. Interestingly, the most common profession for Jews at the time was as soldiers, hired by the Persians to guard the southern Nile, monitor boat traffic, and suppress any potential Egyptian or Nubian uprisings. 
Because there were no barriers to practicing Judaism in Egypt at the time, by the time the exiled Jews from Judea made their way to the island, the Jewish communities there had already built a temple of their own. Based on writings from the time, the temple had five stone gates which opened onto a spacious courtyard, with a holy dwelling place at the center for the Ark and Torah. The door of the inner sanctum had bronze hinges, and there was a cedar roof and gold and silver vessels within. The Elephantine Jews who would have attended this temple had Hebrew names, very similar to those of Jews living in Judea and Israel. We also know that they followed a Jewish calendar, very much the same as the one Jews use today. Kislev, Tishrei, and Nisan were all established months of the year at that time. It seems that they performed Brit Milah, ritual circumcision, although at that time in Egypt, circumcision was commonplace, even for non-Jews. The Elephantine Jews believed in the one God, Hashem, though fragments of Jewish writing from the time also contain casual references to Asherah, as we've heard about before, and some other Egyptian, Aramean, and Phoenician gods. When it came to the Jewish holidays, a number had been clearly established by this point. Shabbat was celebrated and observed by Elephantine Jews, who would arrange for daily business to be tied up by nightfall on Yom HaShishi, the sixth day, in order to avoid working on Shabbat. It is also clear that Egyptian Jews of the day celebrated Passover, slightly ironic though this was with them living in Egypt, although writings from the time suggest that the Jews of Elephantine were a bit fast and loose with the dates the holiday was celebrated, which seemed to vary from year to year and family to family. As to what exactly went on during Passover meals, we don't know. The first Haggadah would not be published for over a millennium, and the traditional Seder order would not appear for another 600 years at least. We also have documents from the time showing that intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews was actually quite commonplace in Elephantine. This was a practice that was no doubt encouraged by the Persians, who knew Jews to be faithful soldiers and protectors of the southern edge of their empire, and could always use more bodies to patrol the border. One example of intermarriage in Jewish Elephantine comes from writings that relate to us the story of Ananiah bar Azariah, a man who worked in the Elephantine temple, who married a teenage Egyptian handmaiden named Tamet. Tamet was owned by a prominent Jew in the city named Mishulam, who had gotten her as collateral for a financial loan he had made to a Jewish woman. Ananiah and Tamet had a tryst and ended up having a son together. Perhaps you'd presume that Ananiah would split, leaving Tamet to care for their child born out of wedlock. But Ananiah was not that kind of guy. Some years later, in 449 BCE, they married, and their document of wifehood still exists today. Tamet, as a slave, was not wealthy, and so we can presume that the marriage was out of love as opposed to a material or status match. Even though she had married, though, Tamet still technically belonged to her master, and according to the law, half the couple's assets would go back to Mishulam should things not work out between them. This arrangement did not sit very well with Ananiah or Tamet, and so they sued. And they won, rewriting the contract and cutting Mishulam out completely. After their marriage, Ananiah bought a house, a fixer-upper for the family, for 14 shekels, probably the price of a few months of work for him. Not only did he buy the house, but around the time they had their second child, a girl named Jehoishima, Ananiah formally bestowed one room of the house to be owned by Tamet herself. This room later passed to their daughter, Jehoishima, upon Ananiah's passing. 
This story tells us a lot about life in ancient Elephantine. There was a robust legal system in which divorce was legal. Women could own property, marry who they wished, and pass on property from woman to woman. A similar tale from the opposite side of the class spectrum is the story of Lady Miftaya, a Jewish woman whose family was one of the most prominent in Jewish Elephantine. She was a serial marrier, having been wed three times throughout her life, and two of the three were to non-Jewish Egyptian contractors. Every time Miftaya moved on to a new man, her property came with her, as her husbands only had use of the property for so long as they were married. It is clear from these documents that women in Jewish Egypt were entitled to initiate divorce, and in fact could negotiate quite reasonable settlements. After her second marriage, Miftaya and her ex-husband went to court over the division of their assets, and the woman won. She had her entire dowry returned. All in all, Elephantine appears to have been quite a modern place, respecting women's rights and intermarriage, having a fluid religious system with a blend of monotheism and paganism, and a fairly equitable justice system. But there was a growing cultural and religious divide that separated those Jews living in Egypt from those in Israel, Judea, and Babylon. In the 6th century BCE, right around the time of the mass exodus of Jews to Elephantine, those Jews who remained in Judea, or were exiled to Babylon, had begun writing down the beginnings of what would become the Tanakh. From biblical passages written at around that time, it's not hard to recognize that the authors had some strong feelings about Jews returning to Egypt after the Exodus. Think about it. The mass exodus of Jews from the Jewish kingdoms was the first time that large numbers of Jews had been separated into geographically distinct communities since the foundation of the Israelite monarchy almost 700 years before. And so, for essentially the first time, the question was raised of where the center of Jewish life and worship should be, Egypt or Judea. The Jews east of Egypt were on Team Judea, and in their biblical writings they laid down many rules reinforcing this, the most important of which was a prohibition on any Jewish temples built outside of Jerusalem. This prohibition may very well have been written with the Jewish temple at Elephantine in mind. Another example of the sharp divide between the prescriptive Jews of Babylon and Jerusalem and the more bohemian style of the Egyptian Jews comes from a letter written in 419 BCE by a man named Chaniah, likely a relative of the governor of Judea, to the head of the Jewish community in Elephantine. The letter meticulously lays down the rules for a proper Passover, with the heavy-handed implication that the Elephantine Jews had gotten it all wrong. He instructs the Elephantine community that Passover must be celebrated on the 15th of Nisan each year, it should go on for seven days, and that eating matzah was a necessity. Interestingly, he also warns to stay away from fermented drink, contrary to our current tradition of four cups of wine, to abstain from work, and to be pure. This last one could mean either to give an animal sacrifice at the temple or to avoid contact with the dead. It's difficult to say. Chania ends his letter with a suggestion that is also at odds with our modern tradition, to bring chametz into Jewish homes, seal it in vessels, and to leave it sealed for the duration of the holiday. This Jewish divide between Egypt and Judea marked the beginning of millennia-long discussions around what it means to be a good Jew, conversations that we are still having to this day. But the Jerusalem-Elephantine friction was not the only trouble brewing for Egyptian Jews at the time. 
Just as the Judeans were fleeing en masse to Egypt, the Egyptians were becoming increasingly unrestful, tired of being ruled by the Persians and wanting some independence back. And, unsurprisingly, they began to blame the Jews for their subjugation. The tension was ratcheted up an extra notch by the fact that Jewish tradition required the performance of ritual sacrifices of rams, which just so happened to be the very animal that represented the native Egyptians' most prized god. So, by the end of the 5th century, things began to turn ugly. Egyptian riots began to spring up, Jewish homes were looted, and Jews were unlawfully arrested. In the second last decade of the 5th century, things kind of blew up. The native Egyptians, growing more and more spiteful, plugged up the well that supplied water to the base of the Jewish garrison and began constructing a wall between their community and the Jews next door, essentially creating a Jewish ghetto. Things only escalated from there. In 410 BCE, the Knum worshipping Egyptians sent a letter to the commanding officer of the Egyptian Aramean garrison at Syene, a city just east across the Nile from Elephantine, asking the soldiers there to destroy the Jewish temple once and for all. The Egyptian garrison was happy to oblige. As described by a letter written at the time, they forced their way into the temple, raised it to the ground, smashing stone pillars. The five gateways of hewn stone were wrecked, everything else burned. The doors and their bronze hinges, the cedar roof, the gold and silver basins, and anything else they could find, they looted for themselves. The Jews of Elephantine begged for help from every corner. First, they turned to Jerusalem, but no dice. The folks there were really pushing for the temple in Jerusalem to be the sole place of Jewish worship, so they didn't have too much sympathy for a technically unauthorized temple being destroyed. Surprisingly, it was actually the Persian government itself which ended up dropping the hammer on the Egyptians. They sentenced the guilty Egyptians to death, reclaimed the stolen silver and gold, and authorized the Jewish community of Elephantine to rebuild their temple as it had once been, with one exception. Better lay off the sacrificing of rams, they said, trying to avoid any further conflict between the Jews and native Egyptians. In 400 BCE, just 10 years later, the Egyptians rioted yet again, and by the end of the 4th century BCE, the Persian Empire in Egypt had fallen completely, conquered by Alexander the Great and his Greek Empire. So, that was the story of Jews in Egypt, an initial period of egalitarianism and freedom, followed by mounting tensions, both between the Jews in Egypt and those in Judea, as well as between the Jews in Egypt and their fellow Egyptian neighbors, which eventually boiled over into anti-Semitic violence. Remember this pattern because, no spoilers, but we'll definitely see it again. Now that we've taken a peek at life in Egypt, let's rewind and see what the Jews who had remained in Judea and Babylon were up to. Much of this part of history comes to us from the book of Nehemiah, one of the books of the historical Christian Bible, though not formally a book of the Tanakh. The book is believed by virtually all scholars to have been written very close to the time of the events it describes, since it contains long quotes from Persian royal decrees, which correspond quite nicely to Persian court legal style documents that have been recovered from that period. So, although the history is coming to us through the filter of the author, it was at least a contemporary author of the day. In 445 BCE, right around the time that the Jews were flourishing under Persian rule in Elephantine, Jerusalem lay in ruins after the Babylonian invasion. 
The Persians had taken the city from the Babylonians some 100 years before, and the Jews were officially allowed to return to the land that had previously been the kingdom of Judea, but which the Persians now called Yahud. And so Jews had slowly begun to trickle back into southern Israel. Remember Jehoiakim, the constantly side-switching king of Judea? Well, his grandson Zerubbabel actually led the largest wave of around 2,000 Jews back to Jerusalem, where they set about working on the second temple. This was a time of deep sorrow in the Jewish community of Yehud. The entire community had been bulldozed by the Babylonians, people had been separated from their friends and family, and there seems to have been a pervasive feeling that God had failed them. In keeping with this, there is evidence that there was a resurgence of idol worship at the time. After all, if Hashem couldn't help them, maybe one of these other gods could. The deputy governor who was chosen by the Persians to rule over Yehud, and who also doubled as cupbearer to the Persian king, Artaxerxes, was a Jew named Nehemiah. It broke Nehemiah's heart how Jerusalem lay in ruins, its walls crumbled, and how the Jews of Jerusalem strayed from their Jewish observance and belief in God. So, upon his arrival to the city, he called for a meeting of the priests, elders, and scribes of Jerusalem. He said to them, and I quote, well, I quote from his quote in his book, You see the distress we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, its gates burnt with fire. Come, let us build up the wall that we be no more a reproach. And so, roused by this speech, the people set to rebuilding the walls and towers of Jerusalem. All in all, it took just 52 days for the walls of the city to be repaired. Pretty speedy work. A month after the walls were completed, Nehemiah called the Jews of the community to gather in front of the water gate on the 1st of Tishrei, the date that should be familiar to most Jews listening as Rosh Hashanah. Ezra the prophet, who had been sent down to Jerusalem by Artaxerxes several years before, came before the people with the Book of the Law of Moses in his hands, likely in the form of a scroll, Torah style. The congregation before him consisted of both men and women, intermingled with no separation between them. Ezra stood on a tall wooden platform overlooking the crowd, opened the scroll, and read it aloud. Peppered among the crowd were Levite repeaters, who were there both to ensure the spoken words could be heard, but also to translate from the classical Hebrew of the text into Aramaic. This whole scene should sound highly familiar to you. A guy standing at a wooden pulpit reciting Torah for a group of gathered Jews. And in fact, this was the first time such a display had ever been recorded. In his book on Jewish history, Sir Simon Shama contends that this was a crucial moment and very intentional. That by making the words sacred, as opposed to any sort of shrine or idol, it transformed Jewish religion into something portable in case of another temple destruction. The genius, as Shama puts it, of this new religious framework was its portability. Remember that this was all occurring under the backdrop of massive empires, and so one could never be sure when the land would be overthrown and the Jews would once again be in jeopardy. So, in this new formulation of Judaism, the written word was everything. The Torah was the exclusive encoding of God's laws, and it was everywhere, written in scrolls, hung on doorposts, wrapped around arms, and easily taken down and brought with the Jews should they ever need to make a run for it. Even the Aron HaKodesh was a portable tent, which could be set up wherever needed. And, should the scrolls be gathered up and burned by some invading empire, there were the Maskirim, 
whose job it was to memorize the Torah and rewrite it if the need ever arose. This was also a key opportunity for Ezra and Nehemiah to disseminate some of the newer additions to the Torah, in particular the pieces which reinforced the absolute importance of monotheism and worship in Jerusalem, which were particular interests of theirs. As Jerusalem was being rebuilt and the Jews flourished and then fell in Elephantine, the Greeks up north were slowly amassing influence and starting to become a more dominant power in the region. The next section of our story jumps forward in time about 100 years, beginning just after Alexander the Great, the famous Greek commander, completely overtook the Persian Empire and all the Jews within it. Next week, we'll see what happens then. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on The Jewish Story. Thank you.